0: Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 podcasting So far, we've looked
1: at natural uh, selection, uh, evolution,
0: basically, and genetics. Um, And those two things go together in what's called the Modern Synthetic Theory of Evolution. It's called that because everything sort of synthesized together. So you take an evolutionary theory that Darwin came up with, and then, you know, we've had it um, updated by Hamilton, right? All the inclusive fitness stuff. And then it was synthesized, so put together with um, all the stuff in genetics right The neat thing about it is that the evolutionary theory is that, in fact it's, it's worked all the way through. I mean, when the DNA molecule was discovered, it just fit perfectly in evolution, which is great, showing the power really of Darwin's ideas. So we've looked at that with a little bit of brains. Um, and the last time we talked about the brain stuff, I talked about how evolution acts on the phenotype. Indeed, there's nothing else it could act on. It can't really act directly on the genotype. It has to act on the expression of the genotype, right? So genetics themselves, interacting with the environment, create the phenotype. So what development does is it sort of links the genotype to the phenotype. Development really is the unfolding of the phenotype caused by the interaction of genes and environment over time. Okay. the unfolding of the genotype uh, or the phenotype of the environment. And again, it's not, you know, this is a, a classic place where the nature-nurture argument sort of shows up, is in uh, developmental questions. It's in developmental questions. And hopefully some of the examples I'll give you today show you once more what a stupid uh, idea, the idea of the, uh, any nature-nurture controversial question is. Right? And that head quote, again, is perfect here. The key thing, and you'll see this all the way through, is the interaction principle. Now, it's also the case, and so I think I spelled that's the wrong kind of principle, is it? No. No, that is the wrong kind. of think principle shouldn't it? There you go. It's a principle. I I think spelling. Um, <laughs> which I couldn't anyway. I don't think they give those out. Maybe, maybe the education. The, the faculties of education do it differently. How did you shut it to spell? That's your that's thesis. Now, there's going to be times when there isn't a whole lot of influence of the environment. Typically, Right? And just think about the development of a, of a human feast. There's not a whole lot that can lead to a baby with three legs. I guess it could happen. But there's not a whole lot of ge- or environmental influence that could make that happen. There's not a whole lot that could make you born without a face. I don't know face. <laughs> how the hell that would work. You have a lot of trouble breathing you know so there's there's things like that obviously there's not a whole lot of effect Yeah, it it would often be the point though and I mentioned this the other day when we would get uh, a phenotype that would be lethal right so something like for example uh, a kid that's not going to have a heart that kid's never going to make it even to be an embryo right So you could get a bad mutation that way. You could get some really horrible environmental insult, right? Some kind of... uh, And we know this, like, for example, from alcohol, uh, heavy alcohol consumption among among humans, uh, then this can lead to rather nasty behavioral, cognitive, and physical side effects to uh, an abort child, right? Can't choose that environment, vice versa, so I'll get over it. Very few things I want you to definitely take away from this class, and that would be one of them. Okay. Some important ideas in development then. There's this idea in animal development, behavioral development of what's called canalization or developmental homeostasis. This is the capacity for structures to develop even if conditions are suboptimal. I don't know why all that came up at once, but it just did A pretty neat example of this is what Dyson did way back in 78. What he did is he misdirected a nerve cell in the software. We talked about the software, we talked about genetics. Basically, just fruit flies, the fruit flies. And the beautiful thing about these things is that they're really easy to manipulate. Um, what he did during the development of, uh, of fruit fly young is he misdirected some of the nerve cells. So basically, you started there and messed around a little bit. Okay? And I think this was, I I think, if I remember correctly, these were nerve cells that controlled, uh, it's like neurons that that, that controlled the beating of the wings. Okay? And what he did is he misdirected it towards a leg instead of a wing. Okay? And you would think, what the hell is going to happen now? The amazing thing, in fact, is that when left to, uh, to its own devices, the development of this larva, it would then, be, the nerves, through this nerve, <clears throat> eventually projected to the right ganglion to make the animal still be able to fly. You may wonder how the hell that works. How do neurons know where to go? Uh, typically, they're responding to... Uh, sort of chemical gradients so levels of uh, concentrations of, of, of various chemicals uh, during development. And that's how ours work too.
1: Right?
0: How does a neuroblast know to become a, a pyramidal cell eventually in hippocampus? It doesn't really know it but it starts to travel eventually gets there and chemical concentrations tell it, okay, grow into one of these or one of these or whatever. That's sort of pretty incredible when you think about it. So, what this is saying then is even when conditions are suboptimal, you still get pretty reasonable development. It's not like you're going to get, we didn't get something, Dyson didn't get a a, a fruit fly that tried to flap its legs here. It still flew normally. I was about a to, you know, uh, really speak physical. What about behavior? Well, social monkeys, uh, social behavior, rather than rhesus monkeys by Harlow and Harlow. Do you know the Harlow experiments? you know the Harlow experiments? Who doesn't know the Harlow experiments? Okay, if you don't, you're yeah, talking about it. Is that like the way of monkeys Yeah. Yeah, it's a classic you can know, do a monkey experiment. So Harlow, in fact, Harlow and Harlow, that was not, his name, uh, he was, uh, Harry Harlow, which is a nice, very waspy-sounding name. In fact, uh, he was uh, Jewish, but because of the Sympathism, changed his name so that he get a job. Nice, eh? All the world. So what Harlow and Harlow did is, <clears> that's is they set up this situation Where Now, a lot of this, remember when this was done, right? Early 50s, people figured what? They figured that everything was, because in psychology everything was behaviorism, everything was behaviorism. It's all about getting reward, et cetera, et cetera. And what's the most rewarding thing you can get? Well, food, right? So the idea of the sort of mother-infant bond in this case was simply, an example, (coughs) excuse me, Um, was simply caused by, according to Behavioral uh, sort of ideas. The fact that the animal gets food, and you can see there's a little bottle there. It's on this wire mesh mother, right? And you can see this monkey's getting a choice between the wire mesh mother and the terry cloth mother. So that's just some basically some chicken wire that has a towel wrapped around it. It's so, in this case, in this experiment, yes, some of them were done. We have, we have some experiments that were done with um, monkeys. So, these are baby monkeys, by the way, infants. That only had the wire mesh mother. Some of them only had the terry cloth mother and were fed separately. And some of them had one or the other. I should probably call them evil. But that was pretty mean to those monkeys, to me. I wonder that you might have trouble getting that past the effort support now. Well you would now, because we know <laughs> it, so that we should do it. Right. So you can see there's some results there. There's Harlow up there. very loose, but he's plotting to be mean to monkeys. That's what it looks like to me. And then here's another, here's an experiment where they you got either fed on the cloth mother or fed on the wire mother. Okay, this is a whole slew of experiments he did. So when they're fed on the cloth mother or the wire mother, and what happened here, how much, how much time per day do they spend on each mother? And look, it really doesn't matter if you're getting your food, not a whole lot, from the wire mesh mummy or from the cloth mummy. You spend your time if you're gonna snuggle up like a little linen anything does on the cloth. So it's not just about food. Right? In fact it clearly almost isn't at all about food. Right. And it really doesn't matter how old they are. See when they're really young, they spend a little less time here. But very quickly, we're talking here, we're talking about between, so that's about 15 days old. They're roughly at the same level. If you just don't look at these, this part of the graph here, look, they're spending roughly the same amount of time on the cloth mother. Right? So that tells us something interesting about development. In this case, so if we want to just look at the case of the rhesus monkey, it tells us that the bond between the mother and the infant <laughs> Is based on something other than food. It's based on what I call comfort, or want to call it snuggling, whatever. So something that's sort of interesting in and of itself. Questions about that? You've probably all seen that before. Now, what happened though if you were raised only with a wire mesh mother, and you never got the cloth, is you get a very maladjusted month. Very poor at social interactions. Which Jordan seems to think it's funny. Um, maybe, maybe you just aren't comfortable. Okay. Yeah. So you get this maladjusted monkey, which was the name of my punk band in the late 70s. Kidding. Little joke there. Um, and this poor monkey couldn't interact with others like, Mon- maybe monkeys play. In fact, uh, usually someone, as their paper and their presentation, picks animal play. I'm not saying you should, I'm saying it's a very common topic. There's not a lot of stuff out there surprisingly, but there is stuff, and it's quite cool. You know, play is just ridiculous, useless behavior that serves no function, right? That's all. Well, think about it. I like to play too. It doesn't really serve any function whatsoever, really. It might, but not in and of itself at that time. But monkeys will play with each other, not devils. They just—they either cower in the corner, frightened of the other monkey, or they attack. Mothers, okay. So females were then uh, made pregnant, right? They were inseminated. Uh, the males wouldn't go near these weirdos. When they had young, they would exhibit courtship. They wouldn't know what the hell to do. Now, and you might think, well, yeah, they never were in a mother. Not if they had a ptery cloth mother, they treated the baby fine. So there's something really important about the, the sort of comforting aspect, right? The cool thing that happened if the Harlow let some of these messed up ones that were raised solely by wire mesh mothers. He let some of them interact for a longer period of time with, because at first they just they sit in the corner, they either fight or they, they sit in the corner and they cower, they're really frightened. But after a while, a few weeks of playing with normal monkeys, they end up being fine. So they sort get therapy. It's like a therapy monkey. Pretty cool. So they basically, and no one really knows what the the mechanism is here, but they're kind of giving the poor little guy some therapy. Uh, Surrogate mothers worked. So in fact, they would then have this little baby, and they'd give him to an adult female. But he had been raised with the wire mesh monkey. And in this case, the surrogate mother could eventually turn around this horrible behavior. This was even true if it was from a different species, and there's a picture of one of these monkeys being raised by a sheepdog, which is pretty damned cool. Right? I was raised by a sheepdog.
1: No, I wasn't. <laughs> when you say raised, Dave, you just mean like to latch onto it? Yeah. It yeah. I mean, it's not
0: like uh, that female is giving milk to that, that infant now. But basically, interacting with it all the time, except in the right? That's a little more of a recent study. A uh, recent being it's from the I think late '70s or '80s. Um, so what they did in this experiment was they did the classic Harlow thing. But then, you see, the beautiful thing about this is that we know that this works. The therapy. what about if we use a different species? Right? It's really quite incredible when you think about it. This, this animal is getting absolutely no interaction with another monkey or with anything that's even pleasant to be around, just wire mesh on a milk bottle. You can see why that would mess up the animal. But the neat thing is, something very simple, like actually getting interaction with something that's normal, eating something that's normal and not pleasant and furry, you, know, you can end up with a normal animal, a normal adult. <coughs> it's really, really amazing. So I think this shows us. This does show the idea of uh, canalization or developmental homeostasis because this is clearly suboptimal what these monkeys have. Yet, and without the experience, without the experience of being around a normal mother or something even remotely like a normal mother, like a towel, they end up pretty messed up. But as soon as they're given that experience, after a few weeks, they actually turn out just fine. It shows the real... I mean, the same thing happens in in humans, right? I mean, babies that are uh, adopted from really bad situations. Right? If you think about the Romanian orphans, the kids that were in... in, uh, you know about Ceausescu, he was the dictator of Romania uh, and he was overthrown during all the anti-communist revolutions. And he was a very bad guy. And uh, this was in the early 1990s. He was a bad guy since what, the 50s. But, uh, and what he did is part of one of his government's uh, uh, policies was that you couldn't have an abortion and you couldn't use birth control. Because um, he wanted there to be lots of babies because, you know... Make countries strong. So, women actually literally were checked every couple of months to see if they had an abortion. Like it was really, it was probably the most totalitarian. state. It's kind of like North Korea, but it was in Europe. Um, Happily, it's not like that there anymore. So, what's going to happen? People are poor. They give up kids for adoption because they they have kids. Because you know what people do? They have sex. So they end up having babies they can't support. They give them to the state. In this wonderful communist worker's paradise that worked out pretty well. And they end up with all these orphanages that are being, and these kids are being treated very poorly. It was heart-wrenching when this came out uh, just after the revolution in Romania. And there were all kinds of these kids and they were, uh, you know, uh, there were there were places where kids were literally handcuffed to cribs, And they were four, four or five years old uh, sitting there in Sheets that had to be changed obviously in years that were covered in piss and shit. I mean it was really, really, really horrible. And you think, oh my god, what happened to these kids? Uh, they were adopted out mostly to people in North America and in Western Europe because people saw this. I mean, I remember when this happened and I was a graduate student and we didn't have any kids. It was like we should adopt one of those kids. You know, this it was just so heart-wrenching. Kids were adopted, and the kids, the younger they are, the better their, their chances are, but most of these kids, especially the ones that were under, say, 4 or 5 years old, have an IQ, average IQ of 100, and a standard deviation of 15, and other they're normal. And they were taken from this horrible situation, and then raised by loving parents, and they're fine. Right? And it's, you know, all the essence, you know, uh, there's an experiment with nature there. Right? That this is like another Harlow experiment. So it's was uh, a pretty amazing thing. I talk about immune behavior. We talk about neural development because you can actually look at these kids and look at their cognitive development. And the younger ones, especially, really, especially under the age of two, you can't even pick up the difference, physically, mentally. And a little older, than two, three, eh, a little harder, but still, around, under four or five, they're okay. Past there, there are often health problems, things like that, which shouldn't surprise you. All right. So a lot of this stuff makes you think of sensitive periods. An animal's nervous system <coughs> needs a certain input at a certain time to develop, or the development will stop. You know about this. Many of you take a brain behavior with me, or are taking it. Uh, so you either have heard or will hear shortly that neurons die if they aren't connected, right? Did you stop? So there are neurons around that are, in essence, waiting for it and waiting for input. And if they don't get it up to a certain age, the neurons just die, right? And in in human vision, for example, there are cells in your uh, occipital lobe that respond to ocular disparity so the different images on each retina to see in 3D 3D. and eventually they just die if they don't get input by the time age about 2 flyers never get a stable image so those cells never fired those cells are dead or they're used up to remember hockey statistics they could be used for something else right and you know, somewhere around 8-10% of the human population don't have true, true 3D vision. You know, people would say, you know, 3D movies don't work for me. You know why? Because you don't see in 3D. Right? And that's typically because someone was born with some problem with their eyes, and the cells just didn't fire. It's very common. Right? So, my nervous system sat there waiting for this input and never got it, and so those cells are dead. So development may not actually stop, per se, but it might turn out differently than you expect. Did they find out there's a certain point in time where the damage was irreversible for 60s? I think he said it like 15 days before they went off. The, oh, before they put the, the, yeah. the surrogates and stuff like that? Yeah, actually, I don't know. One would imagine that the older they get, the harder it is yeah. to, to do something. They they didn't. I don't actually know. I, mean, I, I would yeah, imagine it's actually done, when they honestly do You would think once they had... Sexual maturity, it would be nothing you could do. That's just a guess. But very often, these kind of things. It's the same thing with human language, right? If you think about it, you, your ability to learn a language as a kid is incredible. Right? Like, it's, it's, it's unreal that you can take someone who's five years old and throw them into a French immersion class, they've never spoken French in their lives, and their parents don't speak French, and in three months of French immersion kindergarten, they speak French. Right? Or any other language. Same thing with accents, right? Like we we have accents and if you learn a language, you know, usually before puberty, more importantly really it's six or seven, but even before puberty, you'll never have an accent in that language. you'll have the proper accent to that language, my, my grandfather was able to switch back and forth English and French, and you couldn't tell when he was speaking English that he was a francophone, you couldn't tell if he was an anglophone, because sort of both. When you speak French, you just you're Trubel, it's like that. You know, just slip back and forth. Really impressive. Whereas when you learn a language old, when you're older, the brain even works differently. You're not using Broca's area; you're using the whole damn thing when you're speaking. You never really internalize the grammar, the phonemes that you have to use. You have to maybe relearn how to do them. You know, like an example I was in to teach intro when I talk about this is the the, the French word for red, which is rouge. It's not rouge. It, that's the wrong R. And that R doesn't really even exist in French. It's at the back of your throat. Huh. Right. I had to learn how to do that. Because I didn't learn really to grow up speaking French. It took a long time. You can fake it, go. <laughs> right? Like you live in the East End of Montreal or something. <laughs> that's how you got that. That's good. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to make that... And that's the same thing that... So an accent's basically the same kind of thing, right? You're using different phonemes to say the same words in the same language. Right? So this kind of happens, and in this case, again, it's before sort of sexual maturity. Right? Um, my friend Ian, who grew up... Or, well, was born in Leeds, in the UK, in England, and he came to Canada at about the age of five. Apparently, he got off the plane and looked at his mother and said, Mommy, they all talk black like cowboys here. <laughs> um... And now, if you talk to him, you would never know, because he has a Canadian, a sort of neutral, or at least us, neutral, sort of neutral Ontario accent. Right? Then was my friend Troy he moved here when he was like 13, and I think he kept his English accent, but I think he did it as an, an affectation. Um, I don't know. Yeah, he was like 8. And he still talks like this. He talks like Stewie. <laughs> <laughs> it's really so Oh, yes. That's right. I never... Did. So right now I my toy impressions. i like, like, like Stooly. I haven't seen it in, like 20 years. Interact with on Facebook. I'll have to tell them that. Um, so yeah, I mean, same sort of thing happens there. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was something like around sexual maturity or something like that. You know? One way to look at this, is something Pat Bateson has come up with. Pat Bateson is like one of the world expert people. I think he might be a sir. I think he might be. Uh, he's a full of all society. Um, and Pat's a, a big in sort of development behavior uh, at Cambridge. His daughter, Melissa, also does animal behavior, and she's at Oxford. She splits her time between two meeting little universities, Oxford and Duke. Um, <laughs> Melissa's great. She's another one of these people. I said, you know, well, listen, if my dad was who your dad is, I wouldn't even do this. Well, she said, well, I went to Oxford instead of Cambridge. Oh, I see. see. you have to run into your father. And it's funny, she told me this great story about how she was, um, <clears throat> when you go to Oxford, uh, school's different. It's not like, every other school in the UK except for Oxford and Cambridge, it's just like this. There's lectures. At Oxford or Cambridge, you don't go to lectures. In uh, first year, you do a bit. But mostly what you do is you just meet with a professor. You have these little sessions, and they have you every week write a paper. Read this, write me a paper on this. Read this, write me a paper on this. So you just meet people, and you talk to them, and you can work in their lab, things like that. So it's a really intense experience. So I'm curious see that's awesome. I think if you're kind of a lazy student, you're probably screwed. So, Melissa, her, her tutor, as they're called, for zoology was Richard Dawkins. Now, Richard had had sort of debates over the years with Pat. They were friendly with each other, but they were, had, you know, criticized each other. So, Melissa was kind of just, you know, a little scared because it was this guy who sort of had a professional sort of debate uh, about biology with her father. And apparently, she sits down in class. And in, in, in Richard's rooms, all the professors have rooms. And it's like you, go, and you have to wear a gown, and they wear their gown. It's all very cool. It's, kind of, it's like Harry Potter. So she goes into Richard's room um, at Oxford uh, in the college. So it's not your office. You have a separate place where your rooms are. It's really awesome. And uh, he's sitting there in the dark. And he's got a a light where she's going to sit, which is cool and intimidating and has Alan awesome. And I'm going to do that at some point. Um, And she's talking and she's read all this stuff and she's, you know, uh, very nervous. And he hasn't said a word. He's just letting her talk. And then finally he speaks up. And If you ever seen Richard Dawkins, he's a pretty intense guy. He's cool and funny, but he's kind of an intense guy. He looks up and he says, according to Melissa, Melissa... Yes, Professor Dawkins. Your shoes untied. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. she, she's been talking for half an hour, and that's his
1: response, your shoes untied. It's awesome. She turned out okay. She's a pretty good
0: psychologist slash zoologist. But her dad, going back to where we got this story, uh, the story, had this idea experience expected versus experience depending into the story. Um, Experience-expected information storage is information needed in a sensitive period. Now, sensitive period, again, is one that doesn't have the uh, uh, input by a certain amount of time, development either stops or it radically changes. This is needed for all species members. So, again, we think of a human example, language is a great one here. If you don't get exposed to language, some sort of language, it can be sign language. It doesn't have to be spoken word, right? But if you don't get exposed to some kind of language, by the time you're
1: six, seven,
0: you're really never going to learn language the same way the rest of us do. And there have been cases children, et cetera, children, the of feral children, etc., and people have been particularly confused that uh, have never interacted with people and ever had these... uh, really never will learn language. They can kind of learn it, but they never learn it the way we do. They don't internalize grammar, really can't speak in sentences, etc. So everybody needs that. Experience-dependent would be what language do you learn? If your folks are speaking Japanese and you live in Japan because there's Japanese TV everywhere, you're probably going to learn to speak Japanese. Whereas, if it's English, you might learn, if it's French, you learn French. You can learn two or three at once, too. Like they do in Switzerland, right? A lot of kids, as soon as you get to school in Switzerland, you learn, well, let's say you live in the German part of Switzerland, you also learn Italian and French. I mean, many of us either have no no similar have gone through French immersion, and if you if it's done properly, you come out pretty much bilingual. Okay. Right? So this is depends on the experience. This was expecting the experience. This is the, the experience changes makes a difference for each individual. Now I love the example of human language here because um, it's a pretty amazing thing that humans do compared to other animals. Does that make sense, that sort of division? So, one of the things we can think of here in that context is imprinting. So, pretty much the first thing a bird sees after it hatches, or oddly, a guinea pig sees after it's born, the only non avian species that shows imprinting, that I know of anyway. Um, first thing they see moving becomes the mother. What do I mean by that? I mean the young will follow it around. If you've ever seen, you know, ducks or geese, it's actually quite cool because you'll see the mom walking along. You'll see this in the park. The only cool thing about having all those damn Canada geese in our park, you know, I wish they could. There are days when I wish the species could be wiped out, um, and it's when I. Walking along and you just go shit everywhere. It's like, okay, I wish we just wipe these off the face of the earth. I'm normally pretty pro conservation, but but you see the geese walking along or swimming. It's almost cooler when they're swimming and there's the mom and she's got like four young swimming by. It's very cool. They follow her everywhere she goes. The mechanism there, which was really originally discovered by Lorenz, was oh they see something moving. How does Lorenz know this? Well, he had some geese that were imprinted on his boots. Because the first thing they saw when they were hatched was him and his great big rubber boots, like his steel gear, right? So he's got these rubber boots on. And from then on, they would just follow him around as long as he was wearing those rubber boots. Now, Lorenz said, This is not learning. this is one of those examples where the psychologist and the Zoologist weren't talking because sure, it's learning. They learned that that's their mother. I think we all define that as learning. What he meant though was it's not a conditioning and it's not an conditioning Because there's no reinforcer. Is there? Right? You see something moving and you latch onto it. People do experiments now on imprinting um, and they use like a little Mike Domian uh, down uh, he wrote our learning boat those of you who took learning and Mike's done some stuff where he's got I think it's Japanese quail and what he does is he puts when the, when the birds uh, hatch he puts a, a little cart in front of them that has a little spinning um, I think this was Mike's stuff like a, a light like a, like a, like a police siren light you know and he just he moves around this little radio control thing and they, then they think that's their mom makes it obvious the little light and it moves they follow that damn thing around against like their mother. Stupid birds. <laughs> birds are really idiots. Evolutionarily, pretty cool mechanism, right? Because what if... Do you want to have something that... Would it be possible to hardwire something, saying, that's my mom? Probably possible, but difficult. Green beard hypothesis and all that kind of stuff that Trevor's talked about. That would be hard. You know would be easy? her? A mechanism that says, what's the first thing that moves, you're going to follow that around like it's your mom. Well, chances are the first thing you see move when you're hatched, and you know, you come out of an egg, is your mom. Right? And there's an off chance that you hatch, and there's maybe an older sister there, uh, and a lot of time, or brother, and a lot of times you get this kind of situation in the wild, where, you know, mom dies and the older sibling takes care, or or, or, an aunt or uncle or something like that, this happens quite a bit. Good, so the mechanism actually takes care of that. It's like, oh, my mom's gone, what do I do? Oh, there's something moving, I'll have that be my mom. Right? Pretty neat. (coughs) Now, he said it wasn't learning, but it's pretty clearly learning. Uh, Nikki Clayton i found that uh, the amount of NMV8 receptors, which is a uh, uh, neuromodular. Neuromodular. It's important in long-term potentiation, for example. Uh, increases by fit in the IMHV, which is the... Intermedial the controlling? Let's put on the bird's as I should do. So let's just call it the IMHV. Uh, actually increased by fifty-seven percent after chicks were imprinted. So before and after, there's some massive change in the IMHD, which is a, an important region uh, for, for learning uh, for imprinting, obviously rather in domestic chicks. Uh, just in case you're wondering, that's right there. She's not that tall. Just during the other day, she followed me on Twitter, too, which is interesting. I didn't think think you would use Twitter somehow. This is pretty cool, because this is telling us, then, that we have some neural change. We would expect that. Right? That correlates perfectly with the behavioral change. What you want to do now, and I don't know that she did this, because this actually wasn't her stuff. She was more into food storing and that kind of thing. Uh... But, it makes me wonder that if we could prevent this using an A blocker, would we prevent imprinting? I, I guess we would, yeah. Now, the thing is, people at first thought, yeah, it could only, once the imprint it, it's set in stone. Now what, what happened was a lot of people decided to take a closer look at that, um, and instead of, so let's say you got the little, little, little cart, you know, the little, little cart that the animal imprints on. Well, let's try something else. Let's, right after that, milk all that damn cart around, there's no doubt about that. Then let's have a mother show up. Guess what happens? They abandon the cart and start following the female. Then the question you ask yourself is, what part of the female is important? So this was done in Burmese red right, jungle fowl because almost they're kind of like the they're used a lot. They're the ancestors of modern day chickens. Right? This is a kind of a weird experiment that was <laughs> done, where they had chicks. Little, but these are baby chicks of jungle fowl, which are cute as hell. And they go, it's really cute little birds. It's really unreal how cute they are. And <clears throat> what happened is they were given, they would imprint on a mother, and then they used a stuffed version of that mother. They didn't kill the mother and stuff it, but they used a stuffed version with the parts all rearranged in different ways. Like put the head over here and a wing coming out of here. Really weird stuff. Stuff that looks really gross, but it was, of course it was a stuffed animal. It wasn't when well, I say stuffed animal, it wasn't like stuffed animal, went to the fair. It was an actual animal that had been stuffed, okay? Um, and the most important thing was actually uh, seeing, if I'm not mistaken, it was seeing the, the head in the right orientation and where it belongs. So that was what they were in fact, uh, keying in on. And it's interesting when you have little chicks, and if they don't have a, a mother, and of course you often do this, when you're doing these jungle tile experiments, they aren't necessarily raised by a mother. They tend to be raised sort of communally, and you feed them and all this stuff. But you have to teach them how to eat. And one of the things you do is you take a pen, and they're getting ready, and you just sort of poke it at the ground where the grain is, and they learn to eat from mm-hmm. that. Of course, they watch; they watch their mother do that the sequence. So, in fact, imprinting isn't lifelong necessarily. It isn't not learning it's a special kind of learning it's a special kind of learning now that's um, what's called filial imprinting that's learning who your mom has there's also sexual imprinting and that's learning who to mate with now that's a lot more uh, malleable in other words, you, you, you again, first of all, uh, Lorenz originally thought both things were the same thing. So you see your mom, you learn to mate with that species, and that's your mother. It's kind of a very Freudian angle, in some respect. Turns out, in fact, it's not really like that, that sexual imprinting it does happen a little bit later, and it probably isn't the same kind of mechanism as this. It's, can you switch? Filial imprinting around, if they've learned something that isn't their species yet, but once they've imprinted on a member of their species, you can't really it with um, With sexual imprinting, it's a, when they're a little bit older, and you can really mess with them. <laughs> My friend Jeff uh, tried to make... You um, have uh, to do your grad school, you have to do a project in a whole other area. So you have to leave your area of, of expertise and go do something completely different. You know, like, for example, I did mine with Enfield Tolving in his lab, working on priming, um, and I was doing animal stuff. Jeff was working with pedophiles. And he went and did animal behavior. He was trying to make pedophile chickens. <laughs> so what Jeff did is he tried to do it with Burmese red jungle fowl, because he was he with all the animal behavior people, because he was a roommate with a buddy of mine. the guy that had the warthog skull. Rod, well, he was Rod roommate, so... I don't know, I think they were probably drinking one night and he was like, I know what my project will be. I'm going to make pedophile chickens. So he tried to do, it didn't really work. The idea was he'd show adolescent chickens baby chicks. And then that would be all they'd ever see. And the idea that you could see if they tried to make with them. Didn't work. Which is kind of good. I don't know. I think it's kind of good. Because then you can make the pedophile bear, right? Anybody? Nobody? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Songbirds are another example of some kind of interesting word, something different. We've talked a little bit about this. Now, males sing, females don't sing. She tell you that the function is probably something to do with with breeding, and it is. There's other functions to it, too. Uh, Warning signs, things like that. Uh, Dr. Foote in biology, Jennifer Foote, she studies bird song, and of course Lori studies bird call, which are two different things. So if you think about a chickadee, which they both study, we have the most chickadee scientists per capita in this university. Um, Chickadee call is the chickadee-dee-dee, and chickadee song is the Okay, you'll know you don't hear the da, da, anymore. E- you hear G B E E. That's a call, because they only sing in the spring and the summer when they're going to mate. Oops. Now P- Peter Marler who's at Stanford, who's a very smart guy, he literally he thought there was a template in the bird's brain, and I think you could almost say is there that he really thought that there was a template in the bird's brain, like a circuit that said, you will sing like this. This is how your species sings, you will sing like this. I was lucky enough to meet him when we opened our lab at U of T, our new lab, because we had a guest speaker come because it was pretty cool that we got a brand new building. Um, That'll happen when the old lab is so gross that they threatened to shut it down and shut down all research for everybody at the whole University of Toronto. Suddenly they came up with a whole bunch of money to build us a whole building. Um, and he came. It was awesome. And at the time, he'd worked on Birdsong for a long time, but then he switched over to Animal Consciousness, which I think is insane. Um, and so did a lot of people, But you know, you don't say it. He's eminent. He's a big-time guy. My friend Rob, the guy with the skull in the picture, he didn't know this. we're all out to dinner, and We've all been drinking a little bit, of course, and we're out to dinner with Peter Marlar and Rob sitting beside him, because you know you want to sit beside the famous guy. And Rob's ranting and raving about how stupid it is to study consciousness and animals. Rob doesn't know that Peter Marler has been doing this for three, four years now. He's got out of the bird song game. And all Peter Marlar did just look into that's rather flippant, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Lucky to meet him though, it's pretty cool. Pretty famous guy. He was the first guy that really studied song systematically. Now, the male, not Peter Marlar, but the male uh, male sparrows, he studied sparrows, they need to hear themselves sing at about somewhere between 150 to 200 days post patch or they'd never say. And this is what Marler found. So I'm not going to criticize the guy. Because, I mean, the technical thing isn't really quite true, but, you know, no one ever in 20, 30, 40 years is going to show a picture of me and about the stuff I've done. So, Peter Marlowe's saying And this is true. If the male didn't hear himself sing, at someone point in 150 and 200 days post hatch, he'd never sing. He also thought that. Birds can only acquire their own song. Their own species specific song. They can never acquire another song. So, in other words, this template idea then there's a template in the bird's brain. The bird starts making the sound. And if it doesn't make the sound, or, sorry, if it can't hear its own sound, it just never produces and you can see here, on this graph here, um, this is number of days post-hatch, this is changing the song system developing birds, the number of uh, nerve cells in the HVC, I forget what that is, that's hyperseretum ventrale, which is part of the song system, declines. So these, these ones here have males and females start up the same okay? Males and females start up with the same amount of cells in HVC. Male cells actually go up because this is normally de- normal development because they're, they're, they're hearing the scent they're hearing song, they're developing song. Females actually go down. Well, females don't need song. The interesting thing is, if you look here, this is exactly what it looks like for males that have, that are, that are, that are um, Auditorily isolated. That's what the development of the brain looks like as well. And males that are auditory, auditorily isolated don't learn their own song, like I said, like Margaret Found. That's pretty compelling stuff. Now what we have here. Uh, there's a the sound spectrogram, and these are things If Lori was here. She could tell us she could probably see these. All right? Bruce my white background, sparrows, which is what Marlon mostly worked with. Uh, first one, these were under normal conditions. You can get kind of a notion of what's happening here. There's a constant note, a constant note, a constant note, and then a funny little trill, like that goes up and down a little tiny bit, and then one that's low. So the, uh, this is frequency. Higher and lower, and this is time. You can then see that's what a white of sparrow song should look like. Okay? These ones here were socially isolated, but exposed to tips of a different sparrow's song, Lincoln sparrow. So they heard, they were socially isolated, so they couldn't, um, they were interacting with other birds. The only song they heard was a bit of a different sparrow species. Now look what they developed. And the notes have the same characteristic, but it's too low. There's a couple of trills here, but they're the wrong notes. here were deaf. Okay? So they had their hearing systems messed with. They can't hear. That's Kenichi's here. These ones here never really developed anything remotely like an organized song. See these he spoke that organization to them? This one has none. So it's clearly important then that they learn, uh, sorry, that they have uh, an interaction with another species somehow. The interesting thing is, you know what works even better than this, than the the tapes, is a social tutor, an actual other bird being present. They're more likely then to learn that song rather than something that's sort of intermediate a little bit. So it's not quite a temple there, is it? No, oh, Peter Marler. Because here's the social tutor, right? So what that has been caged next to a strawberry finch will learn the song of his social tutor. Look at this. Does that look like the white-crowned sparrow song? No, it looks like strawberry finch. Because look at those two songs; they look the same. So there's your sparrow. So there's your sparrow. This is what the strawberry finch's song looks like. This is what the sparrow ends up singing when he grows up beside that guy, who's obviously already an adult and can sing. He learns to sing himself. Again, the importance of the social tuner in this case, that completely switches everything around. So it's pretty much not a template, it's more a system for singing. Right? It's a lot like human language, the way it develops A lot like human language. up happening with birdsong is you actually get different dialects depending on where the birds live. Which is really quite cool. So, you know, they're able to recognize close kin underneath and ones that are further away. On the other hand, there's some really interesting data that John Krebs uh, and and I can't remember who else uh, collected showing that he, he looked at um, great tits that were raised either in the UK or in Iran. This is clearly before the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Now, what happens is if you listen to great tits song, it sounds like great tits song, sounds like great tits song. It's like chickadee song, sounds like chickadee song, okay? So, the cool thing is that the ones in, in the UK tend to be in dense woods, and the ones in Iran tend to be in more sort of scrubby kind of area. You know, like it, it's shorter bushes and things like that. It's just not nearly as dense as the wood in Iran. But it's the same species. And out in the and if you're outside listening and you record them, they sound the same. However, if you take the ones out of the woods and take the ones out of the uh, sort of Iranian sort of scrub brush area, and put them all in a lab in the UK, and listen to their song, they sound completely different. Because what they've done is they've, they've learned to sing like great kids, but they sort of modulate them depending upon the environment they're in. So the dense forest has a different acoustical quality than the sort of scrub-brush kind of in Iran. Now, the interesting thing you do now, obviously, is you take some young from Iran and have them raised by British parents and around Britain. And they end up... Their song actually sounds kind of funny. So there is some, obviously, genetic difference, though it's pretty small, They're still great difference, between the Iranian ones and the British ones. Pretty neat. But the weird thing is, they sound exactly the same if you just were to listen to tapes or something like that. A couple years ago, uh, a student did an honors thesis with me and we got a hold of some old, very old well, 50, 60-year-old, recordings of, of Chickadee Song and from the same place. And we were trying to look at uh, changes over time in Chickadee song, it's Hard to really find anything, but it's a cool idea. Because you expect things to just randomly change, right? Just like you know, human language, but the accents change over time, strangely, right? You know. So the importance here obviously of a the social tutor, this makes a lot of sense. One of the key things in all development is, is, is the effect of hormones, and very often, especially sex hormones. And we, this is a little sort of schematic diagram. Hormone organizes the system. It then gets activated. Now, what happens here, this, if the hormone was, was absent, we never get this hormone receptor go. That's what that, that, that diagram means. This can be any kind of neural circuit. This shows down here is what happens is the effect of estrogen. Well, actually is it estrogen or estradiol? Estradiol, which is a very similar estrogen. Effects of estradiol in the amniotic fluid. So this is the amount. And what we have here is we have females, and obviously it's going to be high. And then we have two different kinds of males. Right? When I say two different kinds, we divide them into two groups. And we have different amounts of estradiol. Okay. And this is one of those experiments in nature, by the way. This is just like measuring the amniotic fluid of mothers, and some have more estradiol in their uh, uterus than others. So basically, divided into low and high. Now, what we do here is later on, and they treated exactly the same. These are rats. I never mentioned that these are rats. Did I say they're rats?
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, these are rats. Is you wait till they're adults, which the nice thing about rats is that takes a month. And you treat them exactly the same, both groups. And then you introduce a stranger. And look what happens. If you have low est if you have high estradiol, you're not likely to attack nearly as much as you could have low estradiol. Telling us that the feminizing effect of that hormone. Makes them more docile, less likely to attack. Now, these are all males, by the way. These are all males. And they get more or less feminized, depending on the level of estradiol they have. They still attack. And it's still, I would bet you, Real you know, money would be way less than a female would attack because look at her level less ground? She's not to attack at all. So did not make men less men? Anything like that? Don't say i take this as me being kind of against anything. Please. There's things I'm against, but this doesn't indicate it at all. Questions about that? You good with that? Makes sense? OK. So some conclusions. Um, it's all about the gene-environment interaction. This whole thing. Now, the last slide I just showed, gene environment, gene coding for hormone, right? And what's the environment there? It's the uterine, the uterine environment, right? In vivo, right? but we also saw that with the Harlow stuff, that environment could be interaction with a different kind of mother, a different species, whatever. It was about getting a certain kind of experience. Same thing with the song. It was getting experience, but most importantly, getting experience from another individual, not just sort of hearing audio recordings. Right? And developments—the sort of the unfolding of the gene of the phenotype by the genotype with environmental interactions. People used to talk about critical periods. They said critical periods. We've changed the name now to sensitive periods. Because critical periods makes it sound like it is impossible for any other developmental change to happen after them. And that's a bit far. For example, with the imprinting, if they've imprinted on a little car and much later on they see a chicken they'll go back they'll, they'll start to the chicken. Right? Okay. So like I say the critical periods usually aren't because they aren't critical periods they're sensitive periods. On the other hand if it's a chicken and then they see the little car they're going to ignore the little car or even run away from it. I probably told you guys what happened when there was... You know that funny little farm outside of town, and they they have animals there and they rescue them. They rescue animals that are in trouble. And kids go visit. There's all that nice stuff. We took our daughter, like, 10 years ago. More more than that. 15 years ago. Anyway, they had a... They had a goose, and they had a horse. No, a donkey. It was a donkey. And the goose... Was following the document like it was a mall. Right? So, um, this was on the news and all this stuff. It was in the paper. And when I got in the paper, back from the local uh, the local reporter for MCTV, you know, the TV channel that's in, in Sault Ste. Marie, um, he had called me once before when the tsunami happened in 2005. There were these stories of animals running away and up to high ground before people did. He asked me if animals were psychic. And, Pretty much disabused me of that notion. Talking about different levels of sensitivity to hearing, for example, that elephants can hear with three hertz, things like that. So he really liked having interviewed me one time. So he called me up and said, "I want to get your straight ahead reaction to this. I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to ask you." I said, "Okay, that's fine." So he comes in and he tells me about this. And he thinks he's stumped me. Yeah? He says, "You know, so this goose follows this. I think it was Donkey, the horse, around all the time." He said, what do you think of that? I said, it's called imprinting. I the ghost came in probably oh, well before it was uh, before sexual maturity, and the first thing it saw moving was that, and it imprinted on it, and it thinks it's its mother. It really does sort of think it's its mother. Uh, then I explained Mickey Clayton's work, and the increasing number of cells that are like, all kinds of stuff that I knew we'd never done on TV, but I think, you know, I just want it to be. Uh, I want to make sure that he knows that I'm not just talking out of my ass, right? That I really am not just making this up. So then he asks me, Do you think the goose and the, the donkey are happy? I said, I don't know if the donkey's happy and the goose is happy and the farmers are happy. I guess I'm happy. Guess what gets on the TV? <laughs> just me saying that. I <laughs> said, so, so, Dr. Peter Rodbeck, associate professor of building a goose, animal behavior expert. And then, it's one of those, you know how the stupid news gets sometimes? You know that, that, that filling news? It's kind of like things on YouTube, you know, hey look, the skateboarding dog, and, I, and it's on every news channel at night. Well, me seeing that was then uploaded from here to CTV NewsNet, which is now called the CTV News Channel. And the thing is, that channel, I don't think it's like this anymore, but back then, they just, it was like a headline news channel, so every 15 minutes, you had a newscast. And I was, and that was like, and in the lighter side of the news, and then it would go to this. And it would just be me singing that over, um, The number of emails I got from people all over Canada mocking colleagues of mine. So if the ghost is happy, you know, my phone's ringing people were saying this to me. Moral of this story is don't go on TV. So it was really, really bizarre. I haven't been back on since, I think he probably knows it kiss off but he called me uh, two weeks ago or something or sorry, two months ago I and mean, he asked if I, I was around but Paul was around he wanted to talk to me about why people give their kids weird names I don't know I would have said I don't know Paul now but Paul made stuff I don't know alright questions alright thanks guys